Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. So here we are in the middle of 2023. Is there a 2024 Fox primary and if so, Gabe, can we tell who's winning? Well, Brian, there's always a Fox primary. I think right now we only have a handful of declared Republican candidates, so it's a little early. You know, the conventional wisdom going into 24 was that the Murdoch empire was firmly behind Ron DeSantis. In my a Vanity Fair cover story from May, I reported that uh, Rupert Murdoch told DeSantis that he would back him over, over Trump in 24. And if you look at the New York Post doing the famous cover to future, the Wall Street Journal editorial page has been behind DeSantis. I thought that was going to be the play. And yet, the minute DeSantis announced that he was launching his campaign on Twitter, what did Fox do? They ended up sort of turning on DeSantis. They made fun of the, the flop of the Twitter launch. And so, you know, the fact that DeSantis might be trying to build an alternative media uh platform to Fox might upend the Fox primary and suddenly the Murdochs might not be so supportive. Oh, the DeSantis launch. We should go back to that in a moment. But since Donald Trump has a town hall with Sean Hannity uh, scheduled for uh, for Thursday night for, for June 1st, does that mean, David, that uh, Trump is winning the Fox primary because nobody else is? I think that uh, Trump is winning the Hannity primary uh, because Hannity is, you know, as faithful and diligent a Trump supporter as you could imagine and want. He is much more reflexively, you know, he's an advisor to Trump. He's uh, he's he's bought in, uh, which isn't to say that he wouldn't be able to get right by DeSantis ultimately if the Florida governor pulls it out. I think that, you know, Gabe's reporting is right that Murdoch squarely lined up behind DeSantis, but these promises are only worth you know, pretty much as long as the person who's delivering it is in full view. You know, Murdoch has absolutely Hmm. no compunction about reversing or dropping or forgetting any such promises he's made. That's David Folkenflik, the acclaimed media correspondent for NPR and author of Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old Media Empires. And before that, Gabriel Sherman, special correspondent for Vanity Fair and author of The Loudest Voice in the Room. I'm Brian Stelter, and welcome to Inside the Hive. We're talking about the future of Fox News and the Murdochs. So let's get back to David. You know, if Trump marches through the Republican primary uh, like, uh, you know, Sherman through Georgia, different Sherman, as he did in 2016, you know, the Murdochs and Fox will race ahead of the 
parade and pretend they were leading it all along. What Murdoch really was doing was saying to DeSantis is, I'm going to give you as good a shot as you could possibly get. I'm going to let you audition for the Fox viewership. I'm going to let's see if your messages square with the kinds of uh, tone being struck that will drive up our ratings. And if there's a mutual interest that will sustain through the primaries, I'm here for it. He's giving him basically the first chance. I love the way you put that about leading versus following. Gabe, do you see it the same way that Murdoch will, will he sometimes seems like a leader, but no, he'll just follow wherever the GOP audience is heading if that's what it takes. That's what he did with Trump in 2016. Yeah, exactly. I think that's that's smart. That's right on. And I think um, we should also point out that the Fox audience, you know, Trump has clearly won the Fox primary when it comes to the audience. I mean, Trump's poll numbers uh, amongst Republican primary voters have only been growing ever since DeSantis was doing his soft launch and now is officially in the race. So, you know, clearly Trump is winning the Fox primary with the viewers. Now, whether the hosts themselves get on board is another question. Um, but yes, Murdoch, his number one uh, pr- priority is always money. It's money over politics. So if there's money to be made by getting with Trump, I, I bet you Murdoch will get with him. Really? Money over politics? Uh, always both always written- money over politics. Over Murdoch's career, his, his politics have aligned with his financial interests. We all know that in private, Rupert has told people Trump's an idiot. He's he's not qualified to be president. You know, politically, Murdoch would have preferred another candidate, somebody who is pro-immigration reform, someone who's much more about free trade than tariffs and protectionism. But there was money to be made in Trump. And so um, I, I think, again, it's it's going to come down to if Fox's audience wants to go with Trump, that's where the network will land. Hmm. And let's not forget that the audience isn't static. It's not identical to what it was in 2015, 2016. If anything, Trump and Fox have radicalized the remaining audience to a greater degree. So what they're seeking is that same sort of adrenaline rush or endorphins or whatever kind of uh, body element you want to ascribe to it that's become increasingly, uh, you know, rarefied. You have to provide a pure version of it, I think. Radicalized. That's always the word I come back to. There's been a clear radicalization. You know, we've been talking on this podcast. This is the, the end of our eight episode arc here about the future of Fox and the right wing media machine. And, and so that's why I wanted to get the two of you together to talk about what, what are the various futures? What are the paths going forward here? Uh, you know, originally this podcast set out to cover the Dominion trial that then ended up with a settlement, but there are other legal consequences. We'll get into that in a couple of minutes. David, the fact that this Trump town hall with Hannity this week is pre-taped, and Fox even said so ahead of time. It's in Iowa, it's at a big event center, but it's pre-taped, just like all of Trump's recent interviews on Fox have been pre-taped. Help us read into that. What's the significance? Pre-taped and with an opinion host, not a journalist, you know, who you think of as at least uh, approximating the conventions of uh, television news, sure. uh, which on the one hand suggests that you might have less pushback, but on the other hand, you at least have a bit more running room in the defamation realm. Why does it matter? Well, we've been talking about Dominion. They're obviously still facing the Smartmatic suit ahead for an even gaudier uh, figure and perhaps an even more blatant uh, defamation claim if even if Fox says that it has a lot of its legal defenses still standing in a way it didn't in Delaware. But the pre-taping is hugely important. 
Fox does not want to be uh, creating the industrial level assembly line of defamation that it did for Dominion, just letting things go largely live and with figures it knew were wildly irresponsible. It can tape, hold back, omit, do whatever it needs to for Trump. And, you know, by virtue of the fact it's one of the people who was advising him throughout his presidency and during his candidacy in 2016, it's a trusted figure that he's willing to make some more concessions for in a way that he'd be unlikely to for, you know, a straight news anchor from 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 CNN. Interesting. Interesting. I, I've been, uh, you know, th- thinking about the Trump and Fox trajectory in the past couple of years. And for a while, he was not welcome on the airwaves at all. Right. There was that long period in 2022 where he was he's basically blacklisted. Uh, but now he is back. He's just back in a very controlled way right? with these pre-taped interviews, often like promoting a book or something kind of calm or, or like kind of. I don't want to say normal, but relatively normal. And so there's not these long rants about Dominion, for example, or about him claiming he won in 2020 when he lost. So Fox is trying in some ways to control him. Do we have any lessons, Gabe, from 2015, 2016 about whether he is controllable? Like, I mean, (laughs) uh, does this ever end? Does this end well? (laughs) Well, well, listen, I mean, ultimately, if they don't air him live and they can edit what he says, then he is controllable in that way. But then I start to wonder if that's what the Fox audience wants. Now, like we all remember when Trump first got his platform on Fox and Friends back, uh, gosh, more than 10 years ago to do his weekly call in on Monday morning. The Fox audience loved his freewheeling, free associating, just, you know, rants about Obama not being born in America and all of his conspiracy theories. And and that's what the Fox News audience loved. This guy either has a birth certificate or he doesn't. And I didn't think this was such a big deal, but I will tell you, it's turning out to be a very right. big deal because people now are calling me from all over saying, please don't give up on this issue. And if they're only getting Trump in these kind of sanitized, edited, pre-taped ways, you know, I don't find that as compelling as television, you know, putting aside the fact that like, as just as a pure media property, edited and controlled Trump is not as attractive as Trump unhinged. Oh, that's interesting. You know, David, that makes me think about the CNN town hall from uh, from a number of weeks ago and the fallout from the town hall, which was, of course, very live. Yeah, no, it was live and it was in front of a significant and very warm audience to Trump. And the combination of that uh, accompanied by the absence, or should I say not accompanied by the presence of visual and other kinds of corrective aids, including videotape or graphics that could have been offered by the producers at CNN to sort of confront Trump with or present the audience with uh, corrective information and just pausing things meant that, you know, it was not Caitlin Collins, I think, did a fine job of trying to ask some pointed and tough questions, but it was irrelevant. You know, she, it was like asking questions to a, a steamroller. It's not you're not going to yield something in response and he's not going to be stopped in any way. The thing that I thought about was one of the most effective interviews done was done on Fox News by Chris Wallace. Taped Rose Garden interview one on one, respectful, but also not with an audience, not live. And Wallace literally stepped out of character and just about broke that fourth wall, you know, introducing additional information produced subsequently that he integrated into the interview to provide text and context, not to be snippy like, haha, he said it was billion, but he misspoke and said million, you know, or whatever. 
it was very substantive, fundamental questions that 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 Trump was misrepresenting, uh, often in a disfiguring ways. Sir, testing is up 37 percent. Well, that's 30, good. I understand. Cases are up 194 percent. It isn't just that testing has gone up. It's that the virus has spread. The positivity rate has increased. There, many the, the of virus those is cases, worse than it was. Many of those cases are young people that would heal in a day. They have the sniffles and we put it down as a test. And mm. that to me is not what the Fox viewers wanted. And that that in and of itself, the contempt with which Chris Wallace was being described by his colleagues behind the scenes in the exchanges captured in the uh, discovery process by lawyers for Dominion that were then surfaced in the public realm showed you that people within Fox recognized that as harmful to what they were trying to do and appealing to their audience, which is nothing to do with journalism whatsoever. Right. That's the supply and demand problem. You know, that there's a yeah, there's a supply for this disinformation. but There's also a demand for it from an audience base. One more point on the last idea of live here. It, it brings us back to what you said, Gabe, about DeSantis and the, the rollout of DeSantis on Twitter spaces last week. That was very live again. And that was universally agreed to be a disaster. So I think we're back online here. Great. Um, all right. Well, it's certainly uh, an, an incredible honor to uh, have Governor DeSantis uh, make this uh, stark announcement. So, uh, can are you there? Can you hear us? I think you're both. I'm right, here. Excellent. Let's just unpack that for a moment. When we're thinking about the future here, think about 2024. What do we see about DeSantis so far, Gabe? About him trying with Elon Musk to have this alliance to. You know, proving the technology is just not up to snuff. Uh, then Fox basically making fun of Twitter, ridiculing them, and having DeSantis on later for a much more normal, successful interview. Yeah, I mean, I think that Twitter rollout, you know, listen, in three months, will we even be talking about it? It's impossible to say. But as a short-term political problem, it was so devastating because DeSantis's whole argument is, I'll be Trump without the incompetence and the drama, right? Like, I profiled DeSantis for Vanity Fair last year, and he said to donors, well, I'll build the wall. Trump wasn't competent enough to build the wall. Well, here he is on the rollout that gets completely botched, which undermines the case for competence. He can't even deliver a campaign rollout uh, effectively. And I think just one other point I want to make, Brian, is say Trump you know, is freewheeling and, and um, sort of improvisational as he is. The one thing Trump does better than any other candidate is stagecraft. And, you know, I've covered Trump. He wants to know what the stage is going to look like, where the flags. He thinks of politics, as we all know, as a, as a TV production. And when he came down that golden escalator in 2015, that image of him coming down with Melania inside Trump Tower, the building that he built and a golden escalator, that image cemented its place in the voter's mind as him being a powerful person. And I just wonder if DeSantis being on this like, you know, scratchy audio recording that keeps cutting out will just be <laughs> this lasting image that he just, it just diminished himself so much. Stick around. We'll be right back with Gabe Sherman and David Fulkenflick. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. 
The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. There was a headline last week, David, from Axios saying Musk moves in on Murdoch. Elon Musk has displaced Rupert as the king of conservative media in recent weeks. You know, you're the author of Murdoch's World. Is Rupert Murdoch really being displaced by Elon Musk? No, I think uh, Musk would like to present that kind of stature in that realm and capability. You know, you've heard about rumblings, not just about Tucker Carlson announcing he's going there, although there may be some negotiations that happened there first before that occurs. But also uh, you've heard about the Daily Wire taking, you know, some of its, uh, what is it, videos or podcasts to Twitter to to present, you know, to reach uh, that on an even larger platform. And I think Ben Shapiro has built up a pretty impressive, uh, what, leaving aside the content, a pretty impressive array of, of content there that appeals to younger conservatives. But I don't think Murdoch is uh, been displaced by Musk. I think that what you saw on the air on Fox up and down the lineup was people mocking what happened to DeSantis to both kind of whip DeSantis back into line and remind him who who it was who was giving him point of pride for all these months uh, in the lead up to these announcements and also a way of uh, saying to their viewers Musk doesn't have it you know Musk is a joke even as you know we all remember in the Super Bowl Musk was there in the in the private box right with Elizabeth Murdoch and Rupert a very interesting constellation of characters to be there, given Elizabeth's own known personal partisan beliefs and where Elon has arrived these days. Elizabeth Murdoch thought of as quite liberal uh, in her leanings and, and certainly moderate and temporizing and against a lot of the things that uh, Elon's been trolling his own users about on Twitter of late. But I don't <laughs> see Murdoch as being displaced. I do think that there is, you know, increasing apprehension over where eyeballs may go. You know, mm. there's that line on succession where uh, the head of the fictional version of Fox News, ATN, Tom Wamscon, says something along the lines of, I'm decapitating heads and I'm, uh, I'm harvesting eyeballs. I think that certainly they're, they're fearful at Fox over where eyeballs may be harvested. <laughs> harvesting eyeballs. Thank you for that image, Succession and David, for, for replaying it for us. Tucker's next steps. You mentioned Tucker Carlson. Gabe, where's, where's your head at about what's going to happen now? It's been more than a month since he was fired. There have been legal threats. You know, there's been the announcement of a Twitter show. The show didn't happen in May. So where do you think uh, we're heading with Tucker? What I've heard is um, that he's trying to get out of his contract at the end of this year. He wants to be able to get back into the media's bloodstream come January 2024. He desperately wants to cover 2024. Fox is holding the line and they're trying to keep him on the bench until 2025. And, you know, that's what all this legal maneuvering is about is can his lawyer, Brian Friedman, 
find a, an exit, somehow a, a way to get him out of this contract. Tucker just wants out. Like, I don't think it's not a question of money. In fact, he doesn't want the 20 million that Fox owes him next year, from what I've heard. He just wants to be able to be a free agent again and find another platform for his show. David? I think that's about right. It's one of those very funny times where a network, even as Fox is going currently through some layoffs, which they don't like to talk about, uh, they're desperate for Tucker Carlson to take, you know, uh, an eight-figure sum from them to shut him up. They they can't afford to have him anymore, and they can't afford him to be somewhere else. And, you know, I think Tucker Carlson quite rightly realizes that if he is sidelined for two full years and iced during an actual presidential cycle, that he will be in real peril of losing the significant uh, mind space that he has over the conservative and Republican politics that far outstrips and exceeds both his viewership Hmm. and what one would rationally think to ascribe to a primetime TV cable host, you know? (laughs) I mean, he has really been a figure viewed as an intellectual and political figure, somebody who helped to, I won't say dictate terms, but shape terms uh, that led to the speakership of Kevin McCarthy. When you saw Ted Cruz effectively bending a knee to Carlson after calling the participants in the siege of the Capitol on January 6th uh, domestic terrorists and then walking it back fully, sort of being berated by Carlson about it. Uh, You know, it's an extraordinary exercise of influence that approaches a kind of power that is in some ways uh, a, a, a source of tension and a source of competition with the kinds of influence the Murdochs themselves have enjoyed. It's almost as if he became... The Roger Ailes figure, even though he wasn't running Fox News, he became the heavyweight, the king, the 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 um, the kingmaker of conservative media. Gabe, your your book is the loudest voice in the room, all about Ailes. Do you, do you buy into that analogy at all? No, I do. I think that Tucker, in terms of understanding what storylines would connect with the audience, understood the Fox audience better than any other host on the network. And as I heard from a source the other day, DeSantis's camp had talked to Tucker people about launching his candidacy on Fox, on Tucker's show, if Tucker had still had a show, which again shows you that his show, that 8 p.m. slot, was the most valuable real estate in Republican media. You know, Tucker built something that was in a certain way bigger than the Fox brand. And every host on Fox who did that, whether it's Glenn Beck, Sarah Palin to some degree, Megyn Kelly, it never ended well for them. I mean, Fox has shown that the brand is more powerful than any personality, and Tucker will be another test case of that. Right. So now we will see in the weeks to come, the months to come, if they can claw back the Tucker audience, if they can claw back the fans. For now, at least, Newsmax has benefited somewhat. And it's not really measurable, but maybe other far-right outlets and podcast networks and others have benefited from, from Fox's vulnerability. Hey, stick around. We'll be right back. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. I'm Brian Stelter. 
Now, David, when you look ahead months or even years, what about the further legal ramifications for Fox emanating from the big lie of 2020? Everyone knows about the Dominion settlement, but there are these other cases looming and and you've written about what else is is to come. So uh, can you summarize that for us? Sure. I mean, I think the most uh, consequential, obviously, is is almost like Dominion Part Two. It's Smartmatic, a smaller election tech company that appears to have played no role in this country in the 2020 elections, except in Los Angeles County, where Joe Biden was going to win essentially three to two, no matter what happened. And they were repeatedly alleged to have been taken part in this enormous, vast conspiracy to deny Donald Trump the presidency in 2020. Simply, not only didn't it happen, it couldn't have happened. And you know, this is going to play out in New York. Additionally, Tucker Carlson's been sued by a former senior producer, a woman who's the head of booking for his show for a short stretch and had been with Maria Bartiromo, Abby Grossberg. And Fox has gone from being completely contemptuous and dismissive to sort of vaguely affirming how important it is for people to have respectful workplaces in response to her lawsuit alleging essentially bigotry uh, and sexism as being rampant throughout the Carlson's show's workplace, uh, as she seems to have indicated that she's taped a lot of her conversations. You know, if you think back to Gretchen Carlson and the Roger Ailes lawsuit of 2016, you know, Gretchen Carlson got paid out 20 million at a time when others were paid out maybe a half million because she mm. recorded it all on her iPhone or so much of it. That lawsuit, which is really a mini lawsuit, also casts a large shadow because they cannot afford for more of these things to come out. I do think that there's the the legal aspects and then there's just the corporate governance aspects that I think was easy to overlook. Uh, but ultimately goes to not just the leadership of Fox News, but Fox Corp, the parent company, the Murdochs and those around them to say, you know, in any other corporation, this would be an enormous black eye. I mean, the judgments that were involved, the level of knowledge that was involved, the fact that Rupert and Lachlan were involved in basically uh, their thering, their independent directors who were saying to them, somebody of the stature of former House Speaker, Paul Ryan, saying, no, no, it's important that we just meet the audience where they are to tell them in a way they can absorb and accept it, as opposed to saying, yeah, look, this is hard, but we're a news business and we've got to tell people the facts without fear of favor. They did that with Rupert's support and stood by it on election night in 2020 in that pivotal call of Arizona for Democratic challenger Joe Biden. And then they they abandoned that uh, as many of their viewers abandoned them. This is a company controlled by a family, even if it's publicly traded. And therefore, their missteps and shortcomings and motivations become those of the company, not just of them individually. And it comes back to, as it always does, it comes back to the family. Uh, so, so thank you for bringing us, you know, full circle in that way, uh, David. Um, so first to you and then then to Gabe, where, you know, if, if uh, without drawing the succession analogies, like, how does this season end? You've got Rupert Murdoch. He's not getting any younger. You've got his son, James, who, you know, uh, is on the Tesla board, who is off doing his own ventures, who holds fundraisers for President Biden, you know, like, could not be more different from his dad and his brother, Lachlan. Um, can you, you know, kind of paint that picture for us of what the future could be? Look, uh, Lachlan has pole position. Lachlan is entrenched in both wings of his family's media empire, the publishing side at News Corp uh, and a Fox Corp itself. Uh, and he's been presenting himself as the reasonable face of a center right you know, media empire that just does things a little differently, but is squarely in the modern age. I don't think that uh, comports with the company as we actually experience it uh, as consumers or the volatility and the turbulence that this company has encountered 
as a result of conscious decisions being made by people at the very top ranks of it. So, you know, James will have to both decide uh, when Murdoch uh, either voluntarily or involuntarily relinquishes control of this, that is Rupert, um, whether or not he's going to do a full confrontation of Lachlan for control of the company and whether or not, you know, Prudence, his uh, elder half-sister, and Elizabeth, his sister, might be brought along on that given the consequences of the leadership in the Lachlan era, or whether there might be another path that would involve the 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 family thinking about relinquishing control of this and allowing the, you know, corporate leaders to to guide the company's future. You know, there are different ways for this to happen and people ways for people to, to want to cash out. You know, James has been sitting in purgatory for a while thinking hard about his choices. And uh I think these are all long plays for all of these siblings. What do you think, Gabe? Yeah, I mean, the only people that ultimately know what's going to happen to the media empire in a post-Rupert world are the the four siblings that have voting control over the family trust. There is a feeling inside Fox that either James will wrest control of the company and make Fox a center or center-right alternative to CNN or the more likely scenario is that they just sell it. I mean, the Fox News, like a lot of cable news, is a declining business. I mean, the audience is getting older every year. And the kids might just decide that, you know, taking several billion dollars now for Fox News saves themselves a lot of the, you know, political headache and toxicity. And they can all cash out and and be, you know, richer than they're already obscenely rich. And I would point out also, Brian, that none of the kids, and I include Lachlan in this, love the game as much as Rupert. I mean, Rupert, he lives for the game and he lives for the newsroom. Even today, you know, in his 90s, he'll ask reporters what they're hearing, what gossip they're hearing. Um, And so, you know, I, I I think it would be easier for the children to sell Fox News after Rupert is no longer here, just because I don't think they have that deep passion for it. I mean, Lachlan, let's remember, lives in Sydney, Australia. He moved, you know, back home from Los Angeles, left America, and he's running, you know, the most powerful American media and news empire from Australia. That to me tells me that he is not as, you know, hungry to be in the Mm. mix as his dad. Such a great note. I, I remember thinking that when I was reading through the depositions that came out through Dominion and, you know, the staffers, what you hear from from folks inside Fox in these depositions, they say, Rupert's a newsman, right? He's a newsman. They don't say that about Lachlan. No. They don't describe him that way at all. Yeah. Uh, it, it is entirely different. And I feel like these recent leaks to the New York Times and elsewhere about the Fox board, not knowing how bad the Dominion case was, feels to me like they're trying to pin the blame on certain uh, deputies, but the hands are always clean. The, the Murdoch's always, you know, win, right? Whatever deputy ends up losing. Um, I'm always amazed. Let me just jump in. I'm always amazed at how the most powerful people in the world conveniently just aren't up on, are, you know, they weren't really up on the, the the running of things. I'm like, how do you amass all this power? And yet when it comes down to it, you're not really responsible for anything. <laughs> yes, I have been struck by that as well. Uh, so at the end of the day, the, the Murdoch family, the power struggle, those questions will linger. When it comes to 2024, Gabe uh, and, and, and Donald Trump, uh, I, I'm getting the sense from you that, you know, 
it's it's Trump's unless somebody else you know finds a way to be the Trump slayer, right? You have Donald Trump who bashes Fox at every opportunity nowadays, who uses True Social to mock the network for not being right wing enough, and yet you know this week it's going to be all about his t- Hannity town hall. So you know they're like a rubber band. You know Fox and, and Trump they'll pull together, they'll, but then they'll snap right back in place when need be. And it seems like at least here in the beginning of the summer of 2023, there's not a clear. Um, alternative to Trump that's taking and consolidating control of the Republican Party. No, you know, Trump has only gotten stronger over the last um, several weeks as other people have gotten into the race. And, you know, the, the thinking is, oh, well, these other indictments haven't come down. But from Republicans I talk to, even the never Trumpers who don't like Trump, they say that these indictments will only make him stronger in the eyes of the Republican base because they see it as some sort of witch hunt or Trump has so successfully framed anything that comes his way as his persecution that I don't have a lot of faith that these indictments will dislodge him from the top of the ticket. And so it is, you're right, Brian, this really is Trump's election to lose. That was Vanity Fair's Gabriel Sherman and NPR's David Fulkenflik. This episode was produced by Michael May. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino, and we had engineering assistance from Gabe Caroga and Jake Loomis. Mixing was by Bob Mallory. I'm Brian Stelter, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brian Stelter. We're going to take a break from our Fox-focused coverage for a bit, but be sure to tune in to Delia Kai and Charlotte Klein right here in this feed next week. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.